Well, I know you know it happened again. We've had another mass shooting, another one in Texas, another one that is senseless, another one that is inexplicable. Why would someone who was pulled over for a ticket think that the solution was to go and shoot people he did not know, kill people whom had never, he had never met? Uh, how could that possibly make sense in any mind? Um, when you look at our world and what goes on, there are things that uh, just don't fit our narrative. Uh, our worldview is that we are basically good, that it's society that harms us, and yet uh, as we look around and look at our own hearts, there is brokenness everywhere we look. Our worldview says that if we have financial blessing, then, then we will be happy. But the reality is that we are an incredibly affluent society and we are increasingly broken. Our worldview says that most of us are victims of something, and yet the reality is sometimes we're much better at victimizing others than being victims. Uh, it is another case where uh, those uh, who are in authority will, I sadly believe, use it as an opportunity to extend their own agendas and yet, once again, will probably make little, very little effort to, to do whatever we can about the problem. But it, it, it is a clear illustration that we're just not quite as good as we think we are. Um, the Bible has a, a word for that, and it's, it's sin. In, in the Bible, there is this idea, there are over 20 words used in Scripture for sin, um, all of which show a different shade of the meaning. The one that's most familiar, the one that you've probably heard spoken of most, is that it is missing the mark. But in reality, there are many different words that are used to describe sin, and each one reflects a different aspect of its reality. In fact, uh, Charles Ryrie, uh, as is so much his habit, does a beautiful job of summarizing them. He says, sin may be properly be defined using all these descriptive words for its various forms as recorded in the Old and New Testament. Such a definition would be accurate but lengthy. Indeed, it might be a good idea to define sin thus. Sin is missing the mark, badness, rebellion, iniquity, going astray, wickedness, wandering, ungodliness, crime, lawlessness, transgression, ignorance, and falling away. In other words, as you look at all of those words, they, they give this big picture of everything that is broken in us, and that is what Scripture calls sin. It is, it is that sense in which we do not live up to what we know we should. But fundamentally, if we're going to talk about sin, we have to start from the beginning. Uh, I'm going to do four Sundays on sin. We're, today we're going to talk about what is it and what's the problem with it. Next week we're going to talk about what do I do about my sin. Then the next week will be fun. I'm going to talk about what to do about your sin. And then finally we'll talk about what to do about the world's sin. And um, I'm gathering illustrations as I go, so um, just, just keep that in mind. Um, uh, how do we define sin or evil? 
or wickedness or what's wrong? How, how do you come up with a definition from that? Uh, many of us in our society have come to believe it's, it's like the Supreme Court famously described pornography. You know it when you see it. But the problem is we have come to a point in our society when we have varying degree definitions, don't we? So for the, our worldview, the Judeo-Christian worldview, the, Christian, the biblical worldview, it literally does start in the beginning. It begins with Genesis chapter 1, if you don't mind turning there. The, the whole idea of what our worldview consists of is rooted in the first chapters of Genesis. And so we're going to walk briefly through those passages. We're going to discuss briefly how the Apostle Paul relates to them in the book of Romans and hopefully then land the plane, as we say in preaching circles, with a conclusion that's helpful. Verse 1, in the beginning God created the heavens and the earth. That's it. In the beginning, God created the heavens and earth. That is foundational to our whole worldview. That God created. That he is the sole source of everything that exists. And that he did it by the action of his own will and his will alone that he created from nothing and because he created he has the right as sovereign over all that is created that is the fundamental truth of our worldview and that is why uh, the issue of science and its answer to in the beginning god created is not just a scientific debate it is a theological debate. Uh, most of us, and certainly those younger than I, have, have been instructed and taught that, that all that exists happened through a bunch of cosmic realities that occurred. Whether a big bang or a slow fizzle, all kinds of realities came about through something that we cannot explain, but it occurred totally naturally. And and that that has removed God from the discussion. And that is a theological debate. Um, just this week, I stumbled onto articles about a Yale professor of computer science named, and I'll, I'll mess this up, David Glerner. He came out in the Claremont Review of Books, spring edition, and said, Darwinian evolution is a brilliant and beautiful scientific theory. It was once a daring guess, and today it is the basic to the credo that defines the modern worldview. Accepting the theory as settled truth certifies that you are devoutly orthodox in your scientific views which in turn is essential first step towards being taken seriously in any part of the modern intellectual life. But then he asks, but what if Darwin is wrong? And as he studied Darwinian theology, 
and, and in particular studied the odds of accidental production of the amino acids necessary for life, he came to the scientific conclusion that it is utterly unacceptable to believe that all of this happened on its own. That, that the odds are so overwhelming as to be impossible to believe. And yet he admits that in his world, to not accept this theory is, is suicide in your career. And he comes to the conclusion that is because it has taken the role of religion. It, it, is, it is an object of faith. Now, some of you, especially you who teach science or studied science, your minds are going off. Is he arguing seven literal days? Is he arguing that the world was created in 4000 BC like my old Bible had in the usher's chronology in the top? Is he arguing, I'm not arguing any of that stuff, okay? I'm not a scientist, I are a business major <laughs> who studied some theology, but, but I, I'm, I'm that, I don't have a dog in that fight right now. There are, there are very smart people who are debating that issue, but to me, that is not the primary issue. The primary issue is the issue that God articulates in Genesis chapter 1, and that is, in the beginning, God created. Because if that is true, if that is true, then that defines all of the rest of reality. Because that means that all that we see is because of him. That means that he has rights and privileges of creator to define what is good and what is bad. That means that he is the God of the universe, whether we accept it or not. A number of years ago, I heard E.V. Hill, great African-American preacher from Watts. He said, there's a bumper sticker going around that says, God said it, I believe it, and that's that. He said, that is totally wrong. If God said it, that's that. Don't matter whether I believe it or not. Um, the, the, the reality is that if God is the sole creator of all of the universe, then that is the beginning point of all other thought. And that's why the secular attempt to debunk that has become a theological point in the world around us today. Because there is a desperate desire to take God out of the picture. And our children as one speaker said recently, are being catechized by the world. They are being taught regularly that, that creation is not, it has nothing to do with the God. Therefore, we don't have to worry about him. In the beginning, God. That's fundamental to our worldview. So that when we ask the question about sin, one of the questions we ask is, well, who says what sin is? The Bible's answer is God, creator of heaven and earth. If you read on, it says more. Uh, verse 26, then God said, let us make mankind in our own image, in our own likeness, so that they may rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, over the livestock, and all the wild animals, and all, or all the creatures that move along the ground. So God created mankind in his own image, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. According to scripture, humans are special. 
According to scripture, we are not just further evolved animals. According to scripture, every human being has value because every human being is an image bearer of God. And historically, we have failed at times, but historically, it is Christian societies that have valued the individuals, who have fought for the value of the individual, whether they were healthy or broken, whether they were whole or not. Christians have historically, with some glaring failures, have historically defended that truth because we believe that every human is an image bearer was deeply impacted by Henry Nouwen's book years and years ago. He's a Jesuit priest, one of the most brilliant people I've ever read because he could make things simple. And talking about the end of his life when he, this professor from Harvard and Yale, uh, spent the end of his life in a community, he caring for a man whose, whose brokenness from birth was so severe he could do nothing for himself. And here this, this brilliant man gave the last several years of his life caring for a man so broken he could not do anything. He was like an infant. And Nowen's reflection on all that this, what we would say is broken man, taught him because of Nowen's conviction that he had the image of God and therefore had value. And so if, if the first issue of the biblical worldview of the Judeo-Christian worldview is that in the beginning God is the sovereign king over all. The second one is that humans have remarkable value because God made us particularly in his image. Secondly, he, he made us male and female. In fact, as you continue to go on, as you, you run into the famous command, be fruitful and multiply and replenish the earth and rule over the earth. Humans were, because we have the image of God, we were given the job of looking over creation. By the way, regardless of where you stand politically, Christians have a worldview that cares about the environment because it is the creation of God. Uh, J.R.R. Tolkien uh, famously had ants, trees, were the, the bad dudes of the big war because Tolkien saw a role in creation fighting for purity for itself. He had a value for that. And we should care about creation because we were given the responsibility to care for it. But secondly, he, also, he created us male and female and then told us to fill the earth with other little males and females. I personally think that part of the reason that's placed where it is is because that's a hint of the Trinity. In other words, God created humans, male and female, who become one, and in oneness they create other people. I think it was intended to be a, a hint at the very nature of God, who as a triune God will create others. That's part of the reason we value the family. It is, it is ultimately in many ways a reflection of the work of God. So God created, he created humans, he gave them a job, and he gave them a responsibility. But if you know scripture, you know it doesn't end there. Chapter 3, the serpent shows up. 
And the serpent was more crafty than any of the wild animals the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, did God really say you must not eat from any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, we may eat from the tree of, of the garden, but God did say you must not eat from the tree that is in the middle of the garden and you must not touch it or you will die. You will certainly not die, the serpent said to the woman, for God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. And when the woman saw that the fruit of the tree was good for food and pleasing to the eye and also desirable for gaining wisdom, she took some of it and ate it. She also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate it. And then the eyes of both of them were opened and they realized they were naked. So they sewed fig leaves together and made coverings for themselves. You, you have first man and first woman, which scripture clearly teaches there was an identifiable first man and first woman however they came about. And, and first man and first woman were given this idyllic setting in the garden. And God in his sovereignty said, you can eat from anything around here, but it's that tree you cannot. And, and the serpent, who later scripture says was Satan, came and said, did God really say that? See, fundamentally, the attack on our worldview and our view of life is always to attack God's word because God communicates his will through his word so the first line of defense is to say did God really say that because if if we can question his truth then then we can more readily disobey it right did did God really say that Bruce Walkie, the great Hebrew scholar, does beautiful work on this passage, walking through how all the subtleties of the temptation fit into our own temptations even today. The woman replies, well, we can eat of any of the, tree, uh, the garden, but he did say you can't eat from the, that tree that is in the middle of the garden, and you can't touch it or you'll die. Isn't it interesting that God did not tell her she couldn't touch it? She, she raised the standard. God's even more unreasonable. We can't even touch the sad thing. Because as our hearts become deceived away from God's, what God really said, it is as dangerous to add to Scripture as it is to take away. Historically, we have failed God's Word in both ways. We have added and taken away. Here she adds and denies. And then Satan goes direct hit. You won't die, verse 4. For God knows that when you eat from it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. I, I spent Monday afternoon reading theologies, systematic theologies over uh, in the great theological discipline called Hamar theology, which is the study of sin. Um, I really don't need to read about sin. I've got a lot of personal experience, but still, it... it, it to read the philosophical, theological, and other reflections on the nature of sin. For instance, A.H. Strong, great uh, Reformed Baptist pre, uh, theologian, said that the ultimate essence of all sin is selfishness. It's, it's focus on self. Um, I personally, with humility, say I think he missed it. I think the essence of sin is idolatry. What did, what did the serpent say to the woman? You'll be God you'll be God. The essence of sin is when we deny that God gets to be God 
and either take on that role for ourselves or place it in others. Uh, New Testament says greed is a form of idolatry where we place other things as more important than God. But the beginning point of all sin is that idolatry of self. Every time I sin, I am living out in exclamation that God either does not know what is best for me or he has no right to say it. Every time I disobey him, I am by my actions declaring that I know better than God or I am more righteous than God. Have you ever thought of it that way? I know we kind of think of, no, I'm just fudging around the edges. Come on, man. You're getting a little serious about this stuff. But in essence, it's exactly what the, the serpent says. He, he says, oh, you'll be like God. See, fundamentally, the, the most significant question in all of humanity is, who is God? Who is God? Is, is it the sovereign creator of earth as described in scripture as worshiped throughout history in the western world or is it a, some vague force? Is it, is it nature that created itself through some weird bang and evolution? What, what is, who is God? And the book of Genesis says that humanity fell into trouble when we decided we were no longer to submit to the God who created us, but rather we would be God. What's the problem with that? There are too many of us. See, the problem with it is when my godness runs into your godness, or let's get more specific, when our godness runs into our spouse's godness, or our children's godness, right? Are our, our group's godness versus their godness. In other words, if, if we become gods, if we get to define what is truth and what is good and what is right, then, then what's to stop you from defining it differently than I? And then how will we decide between us? We live in a world that is broken because we have rejected a universal standard that comes from a sovereign God who created all things. And we have instead said that each of us gets to define what is truth and what is right and what is good. And then when everyone has disobeyed us or disagreed with us, we declare ourselves victims of, of their injustice. And I got to tell you, in my experience, some of the most ruthless people I've ever met are people who view themselves as victims. Because they, they believe that what they have suffered has given them a right to hurt others. Um, not universally, obviously. Some of the greatest heroes we know are people who have been victims and have chosen not to be defined as victims. Who have risen above that. But, but once we take on the identity of victim, it, it can become a lethal weapon in our relationships with others. And I personally think that may be part of what is coming to roost in American society. We have lonely young men who sit in a room and convince themselves they're victims and therefore somehow are justified to go shoot innocent people. How do you define sin? Well, scripturally, we don't. God does. And, and he has the right to because he is the sovereign 
all-powerful, all-knowing creator of all things. That's why studying his attributes matters, because when you fully understand who he is, then, then it makes sense why he has that right to do it. But the thing that the Psalms camp on is not just his all-powerful, all-knowing nature, but it's also his benevolence. Because they had no problem accepting that there was a God out there who was all-powerful. What they were grateful for was that he was nice. That, that he loves. That his desire is not just to serve himself, but in his love he serves us. Uh, the ancients were shocked by his benevolence. Uh, we, on the other hand, t think he owes us his benevolence and are shocked by his sovereignty. We flipped it since the ancients. We've said he's no longer sovereign, he has no right to tell us, but he owes us to be nice to us. Both are wrong. According to Scripture, he, he is sovereign. He is all-powerful. He is all-knowing. He is the creator God of all things. He, therefore, has the right to determine what is good and what is true. But he is also equally benevolent and kind and loving and merciful and gracious as demonstrated by the death of the Son. The Apostle Paul reflects on the Genesis account. Genesis chapter 3 is famous passage about our sinfulness. He says it this way, there is no one who is righteous, not even one. There is no one who understands. There is no one who seeks God. All have turned away. They have together become worthless. There is no one who does good, not even one. Their throats are open graves. Their tongues practice deceit. The poison of vipers is in their lips. Their mouths are full of cursing and bitterness. They, their feet are swift to shed blood. Ruin and misery mark their ways, and the way of peace they do not know. There is no fear of God before their eyes. And we read that and say, well, I'm not that bad. But when we're honest, we know we're certainly not that good. Unless we think this is a strictly an Old Testament idea, let me remind you that Jesus himself in Matthew 5.48 said that the standard for God is perfection. He said, be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect. Chapter 3, verse 8, we see the aftermath of sinfulness. What difference did it make? Then the man and the wife heard the sound of the Lord as he was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and they hid from the Lord God among the trees of the garden. And the Lord God called to them, man, where are you? Don't ever tell me scripture doesn't have a sense of humor. They hid behind the trees. It reminds me of what a toddler does. You, you can't see me now. You know? Uh, the, 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 this, this, this foolish idea that somehow that we can hide from the sovereign God. And yet, doesn't that, isn't that where the rubber meets the road for most of us with our sin? We're, we're not near as good as obedience as we are at hiding. 
So even in the church, even in our pews, there are families that have horrible brokenness. Anger and bitterness and lust and, and we come and we look good because we want to hide. We want to hide behind the tree. We, we personally suffer with uh, distrust and lack of forgiveness and all manner of things that Scripture clearly teaches against and, 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 and our, reflection, our reaction more often than not is just to try to be really good at not letting anyone see. As if somehow we fool the world around us, much less God. Adam and Eve hid themselves. But Genesis almost laughably says, God says, okay, where are you? Peekaboo. Um, and then in chapter 4, I think the beginning of chapter 4 is the proof of the curse in chapter 3 because what happens in chapter 4, God had said you will surely die and in chapter 4, Cain kills Abel. The, the first human death is murder of one brother against another because evil has won. That's what sin is. The Apostle Paul, in all of his brilliance, takes up this whole theme in Romans chapter 5. And, and I've encouraged you to read it in the devotions during the week. And he says, as through one man sin entered the world, now through one man there is forgiveness. The first Adam in his sin opened the floodgates of that rebellion against God. But the second Adam, Jesus, provides a means through which we can all have this sin issue resolved. In other words, Paul himself sees the essence of his theology being bound up in that beginning point of, of Scripture. And verse 8 of chapter 5 summarizes it all. God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were sinner, still sinners, Christ died for us. That, that from the very beginning, God's solution for our sinfulness was not to look the other way because, see, in his perfection, he couldn't. He couldn't just hide his eyes from our sin. The tree wasn't adequate to disguise our sin that we hid behind. Instead, according to Scripture, his son paid the price. His son died in all of his perfection as reflected in the sacrificial systems and the systems of the Old Testament and the teachings of the New Testament, God's solution to our brokenness and our sin was to give his son because he knew we couldn't do it. But he loved us too much to let us just die. And so what have we done as a society? We tried to, we tried to say, well, God, didn't really, God really didn't create things. Uh, things created themselves, which is impossible to make sense of, but we've embraced it as truth. And God really didn't say those things. We, we've attacked his word because 
you know, that's old stuff. God didn't say that. We've attacked what he said. And we've sought to save ourselves. And look at us. Look at us. We, in all of our affluence and all of our blessings, we, we have created an affluent mess. But it's a mess all the same. It impacts our families, it impacts our cities, it impacts our nation, it impacts our world. And, and each day we hear new stories of just how evil we can be. But we keep trying to save ourselves. We keep trying to be the God. We, we try to be enough. Men and women, the Bible teaches and we believe that we're dead in our sinfulness. We are separated from God and no amount of human effort will solve that problem. That God alone could solve that problem. And ironically, when you read Genesis 1 through 3, the, the essence of what happened was Humans were separated from him. They hid. And Jesus came to earth to draw us back to himself. Jesus came to earth, if you will, to restore that child relationship. Because he paid the price. He's in him, our sins can be forgiven, and we can be children again. Please pray with me. Father, forgive us for our foolish efforts to be God. Forgive us for our readiness to deny what you say. Forgive us that we seek to determine what's right and wrong apart from what you say. And forgive us that we at times have distorted what you've said to do evil rather than good. Thank you, Father, that you gave your Son. Teach us what it is to follow him. In Jesus' name.